The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have those for free. We'd really like to give you one. So they're at the Connection Kiosk out in the hall. If you don't have anything with you right now at the moment to follow along as we're studying God's Word, we will have the verses on the screens. This is week number three of our Advent series for 2019. That means we've got just one more Sunday, and then Christmas Day will be the Wednesday after. Uh, I hope in saying that I didn't create anxiety uh, for those of you who don't feel ready yet to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But I just want to say, I know that's a real thing. So if I did, if mentioning that we're a week and a half out uh, caused a little pitter-patter in your heart, um, I just want to encourage you to try. I know it's really hard, but try to remember that it's not traditions or expectations, whether those are real or perceived. It's not those things that matter. It's the fact that we are stopping to remember that Jesus Christ, the eternal one, who took on flesh to come and save us from our sin, that he's worthy to be praised and celebrated. And and honestly, the rest is just details. The rest will work itself out. Amen. Uh, Just so you know, uh, Christmas is on a Wednesday night this year, so we will be going out as we do every week uh, to serve those who are experiencing homelessness in our city. Uh, We'll be wrapping up some small gifts as well. Uh, And as we've handed those out over the years, we've done this for a long time. Uh, We've had many people tell us with tears in their eyes that uh, those were the only gifts that they had received that year. So I know for some of you might be concerned that the wrapping paper is a little wasteful, and I agree that it it might be, but the the humanizing care that it communicates to hand somebody a present on Christmas is, is worth it. So we'll be doing that. Uh, And I just want you to know you're welcome to join us that evening. Uh, If you aren't able, for whatever reason, you could also possibly help us wrap the gifts. So if you're interested in uh, info on either one of those, just let us know on a Connect card, and you can drop that at the Connection Kiosk later, okay? Let us know the best way to get a hold of you, and uh, we're still getting the stuff shipped in and whatnot, so we don't have dates yet on when we'll be wrapping. So just let us know, we'll get a hold of you, okay? Uh, Our Advent series this year is called Joy of Every Longing Heart. And we are looking at how the birth of Jesus helps us to have coherent and thoughtful answers to the four big questions that humans have pondered throughout time. And those questions are origin, where did we come from, meaning, why are we here, morality, what should we do, and destiny, where are we going? And we've looked at origin and meaning over the last couple weeks, and so tonight we're going to move on to morality, okay? Now, others may split this up differently, but tonight we're going to kind of bifurcate this question of morality into two parts, okay? So the two parts are, where should morality come from, and what should it look like? Okay, so we're going to read Matthew chapter 2 together. That's going to help us get our bearings this evening. We don't need the whole chapter to, you know, end up where we're going tonight, but really it's just good for us to take it in again together. Uh, to rejoice again in our salvation story and to see how Matthew in particular, he connects the events of what's going on to the prophecies that foretold that those things would happen long before they actually did. So it'll just be good for us. We'll just read the whole thing. Okay? It's not very long. Matthew chapter 2. I hope you're there. Here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come to worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Praise God for his word. Now we're going to return to the first 12 verses as we answer the question about where our standard of morality should come from. But before we answer that from a biblical perspective, let's think through a couple of the most prevalent contrasting views. I think that'll be helpful. So the first that I'm going to give you is, is whoa, hey. individualistic is a compound word. It's got a lot of syllables, so just give me a pass on that one, all right? That's not even actually what I was trying to say. Individual subjective morality, okay? So what this basically means is that each person should be allowed to determine for themselves what is morally acceptable. And it goes further, that it's immoral for any other person to infringe on someone's self-sovereignty. Now, many people who would advocate for this would tell you, because they realize it breaks down quickly if they don't, There needs to be a separation between personal issues of morality and municipal laws. But the issue is, then the whole thing falls apart. Because if you're going to stay true to the idea, who gets to decide where the line is? What's a personal moral issue? What's a municipal law? And what goes where? Who gets to choose that, right? So it gets sticky real fast. And I don't know about you, but I don't think the answer to human flourishing is letting the Adolf Hitlers and the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world just do as they see fit while we stand by and say, oh, well, bless their heart, look at them, expressing their individual freedom and autonomy. That's wonderful. I just don't think that's going to lead to the best outcome for humanity. I don't, maybe I'm alone on that. That's, that's all right. I'll stand alone on that, okay? Amen. This framework for human morality is normally closely tied to the belief that truth itself is also subjective. Uh, each person then not only decides what is moral, but also what is true. And so what that leads to basically is, is this idea that if, well, if what's true for you is different than what's true for me, then we'll just we'll leave it there. That, that's, that's okay. That's maybe just the way it is. And, and the problem with this idea, besides all of the observable evidence to point that, you know, that we could point to that contradicts it, is the fact that it, it, it's this. For me to say all truth is subjective is in and of itself an objective truth. So basically what I want you to buy is that no truths, no truths are objective. No truths are, are, are real. It's, it's all subjective, except this one truth that I want you to believe, which is that all truth is subjective, right? So what I've just done is, philosophically, I've cut my legs out from under me. The argument's self-defeating, okay? It's, it's really kind of nonsensical. Now, moral subjectivism, believe it or not, is, is held by some as a serious view, but it, it is not nearly as prevalent in our day as something else called secular humanism. And this is probably the thing you're going to come up against most if you're going to try to talk to people about Jesus and the scriptures and why uh, it's good to trust him. Uh, Now, this philosophy at least acknowledges that there is a need for some kind of universal moral standard and that that makes sense. Uh, Secular humanism is the belief that we as humans, um, outside of any transcendent or supernatural force, that we can determine morality, that we're equipped to do that. Uh, I'm going to read you a statement just to make sure I'm not misrepresenting. I'm going to read you a statement from the International Humanist uh, and Ethical Union, okay? It's kind of a think tank representative of this philosophy, all right? 
Humanism is a democratic and ethical life stance which affirms that human beings have the right and responsibility to give meaning and shape to their own lives. It stands for building of a more humane society through an ethic based on human and other natural values in the spirit of reason and free inquiry through human capabilities. It is not theistic, and it does not accept supernatural views of reality. All right? That's from Wikipedia. I didn't go to some weird corner of the internet to find that. Okay? Uh, so basically this means, what they're saying is, we don't need a God to tell us right from wrong. We as humans can use our skills of reason and logic and empathy, which we have developed through evolutionary processes to come to a collective agreement on morality. I think the Genesis account of the flood, and then just a few generations later we have the Tower of Babel, uh, I think that gives us a, a pretty good illustration of the biblical view on this idea. We as humans are not capable in and of ourselves to determine as an entire race what constitutes goodness. As a matter of fact, this idea that humanity keeps progressing on our own to higher and higher illumination and goodness is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Jesus said that his followers are to be salt of the earth. Okay? Do you know what salt is? Salt's a preservative. Why do we need a preservative in the world? We need it because humanity in the world, left to its own devices, is like meat left in the sun. It will continue to rot and fester, and it will get worse, not better, with time. And you may be asking, oh, man, that, just, that sounds negative. Why does the Bible seem to have such a, a negative view? Well, friends, we need to ask ourselves, why does meat rot? Well, it rots because it's dead. It's dead because it was disconnected from the rest of the animal, which was once alive. That animal's heart used to pump blood and nutrients into the flesh, but now it is separated from that life source. And anything in that condition, given enough time, is going to rot. This is the way the Bible describes humanity, separated from our Creator God, who is, by the way, our life source. And we would be wise to adopt his view of the world and ourselves instead of our own. But some might say, well, you're just advocating for that because, man, you're, you're brainwashed and, and you're weak-minded. Listen, we can, as a society, we can come to an agreeable understanding on what a code of conduct is that's best overall for human flourishing, and we don't need divine input for that. We can, we can stand on our own two feet. Well, my first answer to that is, is really a question. My question is, can you go back into the history books and find me a decade, any, pick any of them, find me a decade where we were not at war with one another as humanity, as humanity disagreeing over what is best for human flourishing? Somewhere on the globe. I don't think you can. <laughs> Somebody's been fighting somewhere since Cain and Abel. My second answer is, if, if you read the humanist philosophy, it relies heavily on a guiding principle for determining morality. Do you know what that principle is called? This, this I, I promise, I'm not making this up. Go look this up. This is the guiding principle of the humanist philosophy. The big idea they have, they, they call it, this is the wording that they use. The golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, First off, the fact that this is borrowed from elements of just about every religion, but most prominently the words of Jesus is kind of hilarious to me. Just off the bat, okay? We'll start with that. But the argument would be made from somebody that holds this view that, well, the golden rule is part of religions because as we evolved, we realized on our own that this is the best way to flourish. So it was included into religious philosophies which, of course, are man-made according to this philosophy. But here is the problem. Here's what we really we've got to think for a second. I realize this is an Advent. You're supposed to sing a lot at Advent, not have a real deep, hard-to-think-about sermon, but this is where we're at, man. We're talking about morality. This is a big question. People have been asking this since there's been people. 
And Jesus has an answer. So we need to know how to think about it. Amen? All right. Here's what we need to think about. (laughs) Without the rest of Jesus' teachings and the gospel to give shape on how we do this, the golden rule is an utter failure as a standalone standard for morality. It doesn't work. Do to others as, they would, as you would have them do unto you, right? If we just do that, we'll be okay, right? Wrong. Wrong. Why? Because people are different, man. People are crazy different. Do you know that? We're different. And this means I can't just go around with my perspective treating people how I want to be treated because some folks may not want to be treated that way. <laughs> I'm going to give you a silly example, all right? I'm going to use birthdays as an example, all right? I don't want a bunch of hoopla on my birthday. I don't want people to even know when it's my birthday, all right? The best gift you can give me on my birthday is to forget about it, okay? That's where I'm at. It's really where I'm at. Oh, you're injured or harmed or something. No, man, just seriously. I'm good. That's where I'm at. That's really, if you want to love me on my birthday, leave me be, all right? Amen. Now, but... But if it wasn't tacky, some of you would put a crown on the day that the month on the calendar clicks over into the month of your birthday, and you would wear it around, and you would really like prefer if people would pop confetti when you walked in the room every single time, all month long for your birthday, right? <laughs> now, here's what I'm asking you. So if I just treat people the way I want to be treated, what if... What if I treat somebody that's a birthday month person the way I want to be treated? How's that going to go? Not good. We have a, we have a perspective misalignment on what is good. What is moral here? What is right? What is loving? Do we not? And this is just one really silly example. But I think it carries over into all kinds of places. Now, side note. okay? Side note. On the birthday month, people, I love you all. And I don't know what happened to you, but it's called a birthday, a birthday, not a birth month or a birth week. We don't celebrate those. It's a birthday. All right. I'm just going to leave that right there. I'm going to let you pray on it. I'm going to say anything else about it. We're off of that now. (laughs) All right. There there are others. Okay. There's other, there's other philosophies and I could, you know, bore you some more with those, but Here's basically the big divide is going to be this as we think through morality. Can humans determine morality or do we need someone higher, wiser, and more holy than us to do that? Okay? The biblical answer is the latter. Okay? But who? Who's the wiser, higher, better, more holy? Who can give us the morality that we need to propel us but also restrain us? Right? Okay. We see the beginning of this truth unfold in the first 12 verses of Matthew 2, okay? I'm going to read verse 11 again because I think the Magi give us a great example in verse 11 of how we find our place in this very important question of morality, all right? Let me read that to you one more time. This is how we find our place. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Our place is not standing and pontificating from our small and sinful viewpoint. Our place is bowed low before the great and holy one, offering all that we have to him so that he can show us the way. That is our place. But friends, here's something that's astounding. Here's something we need to notice. The Magi didn't even fully know who they were honoring. How do I know that? What was their question in verse 2? What did they say? They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We see Herod as well. Someone who is very convinced of his ability as a human to determine right from wrong, and and he's not wanting to acknowledge any authority higher than himself, clearly. It's why he's so shook up about the idea of another king. 
He's nervous enough about this newborn king to order a mass genocide of a bunch of children. But he, he, was, he was all nervous about that, and he was only working off the information the priests and scribes gave him. What did the priests and scribes tell him in verse 6? What was, what was this king? Who is this king? He's a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Magi are looking for the king of the Jews. Herod's looking for this shepherd over Israel. Friends, the Magi were worshiping. Herod was terrified, and they thought they knew. They thought Jesus was just the king of the Jews, but he is a whole lot more than that. Let me read you case in point from Colossians chapter 1. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's first it's talking about God the Father. Now it's going to talk about his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All the rest of this is about this newborn king. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is not just the king of the Jews. This is not just a shepherd over my people Israel. This is the king of all the world. They didn't even know who they were worshiping or who they were scared of. And this is the answer, friends. This is where our morality comes from. We have a king, and his name is Jesus. And unlike human kings, he's not just demanded our allegiance to his rule, he deserves it. We have a king, friends, and this is good news, because our king is not petty. He is not self-absorbed. Our king is not in the business of using his people to serve him. Instead, he died in our place to serve us. You see, King Jesus isn't the kind who just sits in his throne room ordering his subjects to handle all the problems and, and clean up all the messes. Our king left his throne above all thrones. He gave up the royal halls of heaven. And he came right down into the mess we made. And eventually, he allowed the royal blood that flowed through his veins to be spilled to wash away all of the stains. And as Colossians said, he is not only king of those who acknowledge him as such. Everything was made through him and for him. And the book of Philippians tells us plainly that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, either in joy-filled reverence because they love him or in sorrow-filled regret because they rejected him. But every knee is going to bow. The day is coming. He's king over all. Amen. I hope you're excited about that. This is the answer. This is the answer of where our morality should come from. We look to Jesus, our king, and we obey his commands. But that's not all. Jesus is actually the answer to the second question as well, which is, what should this morality look like? I told you we were going to split this into two. This idea, this question of, of humanity and morality. We were going to ask the question, which I think we should, where should this morality come from? We don't have a starting point if we don't have that. But then it's, it's more than that. It's not just knowing where it comes from. It's getting a picture of what it looks like. What does it look like to walk out this morality that comes from Christ Jesus, our King? And here's the thing. Jesus came and flipped the way that we naturally think about morality upside down. He lived as well as a perfect example of what it looks like to live out in this kind of upside down kingdom that he reigns over. Let me ask you this question to, to frame this out, let you know what I mean. I want you to think about this and, and really seriously give it consideration. When you think of morality, be honest. When I say the word morality, 
do you normally think of what to do or not to do? I think, let let me just see if my suspicion is correct. I'm not going to change what I'm going to say after it either way, but I'm going to roll the dice here. My suspicion is, I know what's true for me, is that when I think of the word morality, my natural instinct and inclination is to think about what not to do. How many of you, that's true, not to do is the first thing that comes to mind? How many of you, to do is the first thing that comes to mind? Okay. Either way, we're all going to get some help from Jesus right now. When you think about morality, and, you, and, and then if you're even willing to bring God into the picture, one of the first things that oftentimes comes to people is, is the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not, right? But here's what Jesus did. When the scribe stood up and said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Did he give him a you shall not or a you shall? He gave him a you shall. He came and inverted this thing. Everything up until then, I, I, I have a suspicion the scribes and the lawyers thought there was going to a you shall not was about to leave the mouth of the master. But he said, you shall. You shall what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's interesting. Jesus went on to say that all the law, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What a statement. How much time have you spent thinking about that? We need to think about it more. What does that mean? What is he saying? That all the law and the prophets hang on the commandment to love God and to love others. We get help from the rest of the New Testament. Paul begins to unpack it for us in Romans 13, starting around verse 8. He's talking about, oh, no man, anything but to love him. And he says, if you'll love your neighbor, get this, he says, you will fulfill the whole law. So think back to all the 600 and some odd commandments. Think to everything that God had said thus far. He's saying, if you will love your neighbors yourself, you'll fulfill the whole law. Well, how does that practically work out? Because what are we asking here today? We're asking, where do we get morality from? What is the source of an objective standpoint from which to know what is right and wrong? Well, we've established that Jesus the King is the place to get that. But then what does that look like? Is it, is it what oftentimes comes to our mind? Staying out of doing bad and nasty things? It doesn't seem to be the focus when you ask Jesus, or you ask Paul, or you ask James who called this law of love the royal law. So what does that look like? If we practically break that down, Romans 13, 8, if you... Love your neighbors yourself, you'll fulfill the whole law. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, some of them are about how we relate to God, right? Have no other God before me, all right? So Jesus said the most important two commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And then Paul starts to talk about how loving your neighbors yourself is going to help you fulfill all the rest of that law. And so, okay, have no other God before me. Well, if I go back to that commitment Jesus gave to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I'm not going to have any other gods before me. And I'm not going to have an idolatry issue because my love for God's going to trump that. No other false God, no other counterfeit joy source, no other counterfeit uh, sense of, of hope or peace or purpose or meaning is going to really, it, it's not, it's not going to pull my eye to the right and to the left because my love for God is going to have me in a connection and relationship with God that makes those other things obvious for what they are. Lies and counterfeits that can't do anything for me. Oh, they're making promises, Sure. They always do, but they lie. They can't deliver. So to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's going to that's gonna fulfill the parts of the law that have to do with us being committed to God and not having other counterfeit idols in front of our eyes and, and capturing our hearts. And, and then, then you go down to, well, don't steal and don't kill and don't covet. And you start to think about, okay, well, if I love if I love my neighbor as myself, if I love and I use the example that Jesus gave, if I, if I let the scriptures define love for me, and I think about the fact that 1 John 3, 16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So if I take that and I understand that the cross of Christ, his sacrifice, 
If that's defining love for me, and understand that, okay, that means if I'm going to love like Jesus, that means I'm going to be putting myself down and lifting others up. I'm going to be preferring other people's needs above my own. Then it's going to be very hard for me in that mind frame, overcome with that kind of action and that kind of obedience to, to that love command. It's going to be very hard for me to covet what you have. If I love you the way Jesus has loved me, I'm not going to covet yourself. I'm going to celebrate with you that you have it. I'm going to hope for you that you get more as long as it's good for you. I'm surely not going to kill you. Even if I want to sometimes. Well, no amens on that one because you all just always love everybody and feel peaceable and have sweet feelings towards everyone all the time, don't you? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing how this unpacks through? Are you seeing how this brings down, funnels down all the things? Man, we could, have, we could have a whole sermon series on coveting. We could have a whole sermon series on why not to murder. And people do, right? We could have a whole sermon series. We could, each, each of the commandments, we could take weeks and, and pull it all apart and, and listen, in-depth Bible studies like that, that's good and let's, let's do that. And we can, the more layers we peel back, the more intricate and beautiful we see how all the scriptures weave together, it, it increases our faith and it's, it's a wonderful thing, but... We, we, we do that, but we always got to make sure we pan back out and come and look at the big picture. The big picture is this. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself, we're going to fulfill the law. We are going to then understand what it means to walk in the morality that God has given us. We're going to be able to define for ourselves and define for those who are asking what it looks like to be moral according to God. What does it look like to walk according to a moral code? Is it memorizing the 613 Old Testament commandments? You can do that if you want to. But what's more important is that you spend time thinking about how practically every single day walking in love applies in, in the situation when it's hard at work and it's hard at home and it's hard when someone cuts you off on the highway. And it's hard, right? When your neighbor runs out there at six in the morning to drag the trash cans back, right? Whatever it is, whatever the annoyance is. Peter gives us some more help. First Peter 4, 8, he says, above all, keep fervent in love one for the other because love covers a multitude of sins. Now here we see Peter, right? Leader of the apostles, making this connection between love and sins, that we were all just making together, but, but now, now, now it's put together by the apostle himself. Keep fervent in your love one for another because love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm trying to sell you tonight. That the morality of God is personified in Christ and is defined as walking in love. So we can make it a lot more complicated than that. Or we can do what I think God has done for us intentionally in his word. Make it very, very simple. We look to Jesus. We do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do even in his life? He forewent earthly comforts and whatever it cost to spend his time preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing the sick, feeding the hungry. He was about others. And I know that some of you who've been around here a long time are thinking, man, are you ever going to preach something else? And the answer is probably not. Because when you boil it all down, man, it's boiled all down. So let's just do the boiled down thing. And let's keep encouraging one another in that. Let's keep spurring each other on to love and good works. That's what Hebrews says we're supposed to be doing this for. The whole reason we get in here and get iron sharpening iron and the whole thing is what? To love and good works, which Ephesians says we're prepared beforehand for you to walk in. God laid this whole thing out. He's had a plan from the beginning. And it was to narrow this thing down and to make it real simple for us. Because let me, let me just ask this question. Does anybody in here ever feel on any day at any point that your life is complicated? Does life ever feel complicated to you? I'm going to raise my hand first. Woo, buddy. Life's complicated. We live in a sin-filled, cursed world. Navigating this thing is a trip. But God's so good to us. <laughs> because his expectations for us, the moral code he's called us to live by, 
He's whittled it down and made it real simple. My dear children. It's, it's said, this is a church tradition thing. This isn't in the scriptures, but it's, it's passed down through church tradition that as the apostle John was getting ill and old to the point where young men would have to carry him to the services for him to preach, he said he got down to where the point where all his sermons were was, dear children, just love one another. That's all he'd say. And what I'm saying to you is it's enough. God help us. God help us be satisfied with this good word. God help us be satisfied with what your moral code is. And not just be satisfied and not just nod our heads, but walk in it to the glory of God. So what does all this mean? Well, one thing we need to understand, one thing we need to be real clear about, is that many times this is going to require loving before we feel it. Because the essence of love is fundamentally action. So sometimes we love first and we let the feelings follow. You may have to love some people in your life where if you were to stop and do a self-assessment, you may say, I don't really feel like I love them right now. Now, I know most of you are having to stretch with your imagination to even imagine that scenario. I understand that, but we need to talk about these situations. (laughs) Right? Love is an action. And the way we put to death all the things we shouldn't do is to focus instead on what he has called us to do. And I just know I'm not the only one who has realized that I'm struggling with some entrapping sin or some besetting sin. or some, I'm, 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 I'm relating very much to Paul in Romans 7 when he says, I, I do what I don't want to do, and then I don't do what I do want to do. And, and wretched man am I. And, and I realize that I'm struggling to walk by this this moral code that God has given us for our good, by the way. I mean, we, we, we all buy that, right? That the moral code God has given us, anything he has said not to do and anything he has said to do is because he knows what's best, right? He's a good father. We got that part, right? We at least can come that far. But what do we do when we get to the point where we realize, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not up to snuff, man. I am not meeting this moral code. What do we do? Well, friends, what we don't do is, is say, okay, well, what, then I need, to, I need to white knuckle it and I need to try harder to not want to kill people. I need to try harder not to covet. I need to try harder not to commit adultery. No, man, that's not the issue. Your love is cold. It's not a just try harder thing. Something's broke. It's your love. It's either your love for God or your love for people. Go back there. Well, what do I do? How do I cultivate that? If, that's, if, if, if I realize that that's the issue, okay, I'm, I'm willing, I, I won't chase my tail and try to, try to do the in my own strength thing. And I realize that love is ultimately always the issue when it comes down to morality. Then what do I do? Friends, you run again to the gospel. You run to the gospel and you bathe in the life-giving waters of his love. Our love is tied to his love. Brother Dan prayed this before the service. We love because he first loved us. We understand love because he went first. We wouldn't have a shot to even conceptualize love the way that God does. If Jesus didn't come, born of a virgin, in Bethlehem, live a perfect life, and then die in our place for our sins, we wouldn't even have a chance. We would have all these skewed, messed up views, and a lot of times we still do. We would think love is just an emotion or affection or it's something that benefits me and makes me feel good. Man, it's none of that. Love is an an absolute unwavering commitment to the good of the other. To laying yourself down in service. What is is love? It's hard for me to grasp. I I know. But 1 John 3.16 at least told you where to look. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. My love's cold. I, don't, I, know, I know that these, these sins in my life, these things, I, I'm, not, I'm not living a moral life. What do I do? Friend, your love needs to be stirred up again. How does your love get stirred up? You run back to the gospel. You run back to your first love. You contemplate again how you've been loved, and you let the love of God work in you so that you then have some to give. 
It comes from him. He's the source of love. One John 4 says multiple times, he is love. You're not going to get it. You're not going to grow in it. Your love, your love is not going to warm away from him. So you run to the gospel. You rehearse again the beautiful truth that you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. That he didn't owe you anything, but he gave you everything. That you were a wretch and he reached into the kingdom of darkness and he plucked you out of there and brought you into the kingdom of light, that he's done nothing but be good to you and that it cost him everything to do it. And again and again and again, and you let yourself be filled and renewed in the love of God. And then you go and you give it. And you give it and you give it and you give it. And you keep drinking it and you keep pouring it. And that's the Christian life. That is what we've been called to. That is the morality that not only Jesus spoke, but he lived. And he's called us to come and follow. The question is, will we? This gets real when we ask ourselves, what does it mean today, right now, that you have a king? This is hard for us to conceptualize because we sit here in a Western democratic context where we have individual liberties, and and there's good parts to that, and God is sovereign, so he has allowed what is right now to be for the fulfilling of his purposes. Praise be unto God. I don't know. But here's what I do know. It is hard for us to conceptualize kingship. It is hard for us to think about what it would be like to have a king. But we need to. We need to let that get down our heart and understand, man, when you got a king... It ain't about what you want. (laughs) You are about being in the service of the king. We just have the added benefit that our king is the one and only true good king, the king of kings. Hallelujah. And so we don't need to sit and waste any time worrying about, well, what if I do surrender to this king like a king should be surrendered to? Oh, well, he's going to do good to you. He's going to be for you and keep rescuing you and loving you and helping you. And then there's these wild parts of the Bible that talks about him pulling you up to reign with you, with him. Let me not go to next week already. Stop. (laughs) What does it mean right now in your life that you have a king? Let me, let me, let me, let, would you marinate on that for a second? Does it matter that you have a king? Do you live like you have a king? Or do you live like you are a king? Or a queen? I call my wife queen just to make her, you know, because I like to make her, I love her, and I'm, you know, for her and all that, and it's cute, and sometimes, you know, gets her to kiss me and stuff. But that's not what I'm, I'm not talking about self-determination, subjective, I'm in rule of my own life type stuff. You understand? There's a, there's a difference. I'm talking about the king of kings. What does it mean that you have a king? Does that affect your daily life? Does that affect the way you think? Does that affect how you allocate your time and resources? What thoughts you let run around in your mind and heart and for how long? Because you got a king. Right now, what part of your thoughts and actions need to surrender again to his benevolent and sovereign lordship? Right now. Something. Because if you haven't reached perfection, then some part of you, right now, you are not allowing to be reigned over and ruled by his good, benevolent, sovereign kingship. That's, that's what sin looks like. I'm holding this, this little part for myself, whether I know I am or not. So what part of your thoughts right now, what part of your actions needs to surrender again? Well, Pastor Vince, you're repeating yourself a lot. Oh, I know. I'm hoping to see some notebooks get pulled out up in this church. So some of these questions can get wrote down. You can think about it after you leave here. Because this will help you. It'll help us as a church. It'll help us as a kingdom. If more of us think this way and ask us ourselves these questions. In light of that, what do you, right now, what do you need to let go of because you have a king? What do you need to repent of right now because you have a king? You have a king, friend. 
Who do you need to forgive? Because you have a king. Who is that difficult person you should serve instead of scorn? Because you have a king, a good king, who didn't just throw out some edicts from his throne and say, good luck, but came and showed you what he meant. What part of you right now struggles to believe that his reign fully and completely over your life is going to only be for your good? What's, what's affecting your ability to trust that and thus surrender? These are the things that we need to come to him in prayer. Friends, you, wanna, you, want, your, you want that love that needs to be warmed in order for you to walk in, in a godly and moral way? You want that to be warmed? Here's a, here's a suggestion. Maybe spend some time with the one who is love. Well, how do you do that? Oh, well, he's given us these awesome things. One is his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus Christ himself, in some mysterious way, the very essence of God is contained within these scriptures. And I'm assuming, if if you don't have a Bible, I was serious earlier. We have crates of them because everyone that needs one, we want to have one. So don't leave here today without your own copy of the scriptures. That's one of the great benefits we have of living where we live in the time we live. I got 18 of these things at home. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But how many times do I choose something else other than picking it up? I've told you guys before, I've been jealous of the disciples. I thought, man, what would, it, what would it mean for my development as a disciple if I could do what they did? If I could sit around the campfire with Jesus, if I could be in the crowd as he's multiplying bread and fish and he's healing people. And the Holy Spirit has to come and deal with me and say, man, you've got something the disciples didn't have. The complete and full revelation of God, man, at your fingertips. Paper version, electronic version. Commentaries, we get to stand on the shoulders of theologians that have gone before us. We have the cumulative wisdom of the church over the last 2,000 years. Man, we are a privileged people with very few excuses for living haphazard, kind of committed, Whatever we want to do type lives, if anybody was going to walk and live as if they were under the sovereign rule of a good and perfect king, friends, it's us right now, 2019. Amen. Hallelujah. May we all acknowledge the kingship of Christ today. And may we live by his royal law of love for his glory and for our good. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the fact that you have stirred humans from the beginning of time to ponder these questions that we do. We have this aching in us to know where we came from and and does it matter that we're here and what we should do while we're here and, and where we're going. Thank you that you don't let us, God, just stay in the grind of daily survival. Lord, I know we're tempted to do that. Sometimes we slip into it, but I thank you in your great love for us. You come and interrupt that process. Thank you that right now, tonight, you've done that for us. By your word, you've interrupted that process. You've stuck a stick in our spokes. You're not going to let us just keep running headlong towards destruction with blinded eyes, but God, you You've come and you've challenged us by your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us please. Help us please live as if you are the King of Kings and you're our King of Kings. God, we we are constantly tempted to take back lordship. We are constantly tempted to try to reign and rule ourselves. But God, we, we already know what happens when we do that. We have plenty of evidence to point to. We don't need any more lessons about that. So please, God, just help us. Please help us. Help us to continue to understand that we have not even scratched the surface of what it means to love like you've loved us. What does it mean that you are love? (laughs) What does it mean that the cross exemplifies love perfectly? God, please. You've you've boiled this all down for us. You've, You've whittled it down to a point so that we can we can focus where you want us to focus. But God, we also are easily distracted. And so please, help us to fix our eyes 
upon these beautiful and basic things. And please anoint us with the power of your spirit to walk them out. Because God, if we're being honest, it is not easy and it is not within our strength to walk in love. We are not able to do it ourselves. We need you. And we want to obey you in this. We want to reflect to the world what the morality is that you've given us. This moral code, it, it, it is love. It's the law of love. It's the royal law. And so God, help us. Help us be slow to speak and, and quick to listen and quick to serve and, and slow to demand. Lord, we need help in these things. We ask you to continue by the power of your spirit to put to death every ounce of selfishness that resides in our hearts. And God, help us wake up every single day not thinking about all the things you've told us not to do, but trusting in your help and strength to do the things you've told us to do, knowing that if we will busy ourselves about your business, if we will join in the great work of your commission and, and, and letting people know that there is hope for them, even when they become convinced totally and completely that they're the one that can't be reached. But God, when we busy ourselves being harvesters in your fields, I thank you that the temptation to sin becomes less and less. That those, those foolish idols that we would be prone to grab a hold of, they, they lose their glimmer. We love you, Lord. I thank you that obeying the morality that you've shown us, this royal law of love, I thank you that our salvation is not based upon that. I thank you that you save us because you love us and you go first and then we get to just respond. We get to reflect. We get to go next. So God, I just help, ask that you would help all of us by your Holy Spirit to never, never seek to walk in love hoping that it'll make you love us more because you've already proven, you've done all that you need to do, Lord Jesus, to prove to us that you love us far more than we could ever comprehend. So please don't let us slide back into that works-based foolishness, but God, let us just joyfully move forward in obedience to you in response to the great love you've already poured out on us. We need your help for this. We thank you that you said if we would ask, you would answer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com dot org